You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Simon Lusk is one of New Zealand's mysterious political operators and an expert in the dark arts of politics. He never gives interviews, but a break in the weather means he's got a gap in his hunting commitments and he's agreed to speak to me here at The Crunch. He's this week's political tragic, and this promises to be entertaining. Okay, with me now is Simon Lusk, and you're going to talk to me now, Simon, about uh, how you're a political tragic and how you've turned that into a business for yourself. Yeah, sure. I've been uh, campaigning for most of my life, and uh, from about 2009 onwards, I've done it not quite full-time, but almost full-time, and it's... um, Really, you get to meet some really interesting and good people, and you also get to meet some absolute scumbags that you just want to take out. <laughs> and that's the reputation you've got, isn't it, from the media, is that you're a person that you go to if you want results in politics. Yeah, I get paid to win. I don't take anything on unless I think I can win it. And, um, you know, like if I, I don't tell people that, oh, you pay me all this money and I'll run this campaign, I say, well, you pay me all this money if I get you to win. And that means that I think that I take the right candidates and I have fairly strong views on what qualities make people electable um, and I don't want to deal with drongos. So you've got a no dickheads rule. Yeah, Absolutely. So what are those qualities that you're looking for in political candidates? And have you had candidates across the political spectrum? Because most people think you're this, you know, far right, hunting, fishing, shooting, um, annihilator in politics. And that's not the Simon Lusk I know. And so wanting to share with Reality Check Radio listeners just what sort of a bloke you are. Well, I have run campaigns for national candidates. Um, I have worked with Labor candidates a fair bit. Um, In the last few cycles, I've done a lot in local government um, and specifically with iwi and getting iwi members trained and um, elected because I've just always felt that um, Maori make better candidates than Pākehā. They've got three real advantages. Uh, The first one is they all know how to speak properly uh, because they've had to speak on the marae. the, the the second one is is that as political parties and sports clubs and service clubs and churches have fallen away, there's not really any disciplined force in New Zealand politics anymore. Whereas iwi and hapu and and sub iwi groups are really disciplined, and you can turn out a lot of votes. And I've been very successful in turning out Maori votes. Uh, I, I don't see why other people find it difficult. You just have to ask them to vote, and they will. And they're quite keen on voting, you just have to ask them and you've got to have the right people asking them. And then the third thing that makes Maori so wonderful is that most of them have served on the Marae Committee, so they're used to having really big dust-ups over small things and they're just better than Pākehā at dealing with the, the political infighting. And they're, they're so good, you know, I, I think that most Maori are just instinctively a whole lot better at politics than everyone else. So you would agree then with the sentiment that we don't need to have co-governance arrangements, that we don't need to have legislative uh, quotas to ensure Maori representation. What you're saying is that Maori uh, have got some natural abilities when it comes to the things that help get you elected and that uh, given uh, appropriate training uh, and some direction that they 
um, can get themselves elected without the need for any sort of special needs type treatment. Absolutely, and and I've proven that they're, they're very very successful at getting elected if they are willing to put the work in, and and they usually dominate um, the the really good ones. And you know, I have friends that are on different councils around the place, and um, the chair of the Hawkes Bay Regional Council is a wonderful Maori woman who um, just is able to turn out votes like. I haven't seen in her first election was just stunning. Uh, and she's really, really good. And, and you know, I've had others that were equally as good. Um, and I don't believe we need to have a special quota for Maori because they tend to win over Pākehā. Uh, and they also find that there's plenty of Pākehā are willing to fund their campaigns too because they are usually really, really good. Mm, really good candidates. Yeah. So... You, you're pretty much your entire life is spent, uh, apart from hunting and fishing, which I'm really privileged to get you, you know, given your um, hunting commitments at the moment. Yeah, it's uh, only a couple of weeks left of the season, so I've got to make the most of it. It must be raining in the Hawke's Bay today while we're talking. No, 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 I've been out and I'm heading out again shortly. All right, you've got to get the, got to get the uh, bag limit. Yeah. But um, you've studied politics. You've made politics your career. Uh, a little bit like me, really, except I didn't study it formally. You did. Which politicians in New Zealand uh, do you admire the most? Well, Helen Clark is, is by far my favourite. She was just a wonderful, wonderful politician who worked exceptionally hard. She wasn't blessed with a whole lot of natural charisma, and she built a team and she dominated for a very, very long time, and no one has come close to her in my view. And then the other guy that I have huge admiration for at the moment is David Seymour because he has carried act for the best part of a decade and he's made his case and he, he hasn't deviated and he's built something where other people haven't been able to. Now, I don't agree with either of them on, on a whole lot of stuff, but I, that doesn't stop me from admiring their, um, their tenacity and um, the, the willingness to do the hard work behind the scenes, which is what most people never think about or see. And you know, all the, the failed Labour leaders after Clark or the failed national leaders thought, I'll come along and be, everyone will love me, rather than thinking, I need to have a fundraiser, I need to have a um, good party president that keeps everything under control, I need a really good policy person, I, I need a campaign team, I need a poller. These are the absolute basic people uh, or team that you need to be credible. And, you know, I just watched Simon Bridges and thought, you're a moron. You don't have any of these people. And, you know, and, and what happened to Simon Bridges was really predictable because he didn't have any of those people. And he wasn't particularly likable, but, you know, Clark was polling at 2% as preferred prime minister at one stage, and she ended up dominating because she built a team and Bridges just thought everyone would love him. And, you know, the, and I've had massive arguments with Labor people about whether Phil Goff was lazy. I said, oh, he works really hard. And all he's fucking lazy. He never built the fundraisers. Uh, fundraising capability. He never built the team. He didn't have the infrastructure that Clark built, and he watched her build it and and participated in it. But he wasn't willing to do that really hard work behind the scenes that was necessary to be successful. And you know, he's, they're all middle managers, and when the leader goes, the middle managers can't start step up to being leader. Well, that's what happened with National after John Key and Stephen Joyce departed, isn't it? Yeah, and you know John Key was was great, but the people that I think really deserve more credit were um, Judy Kirk and Stephen Joyce, who rebuilt the National Party and the funding, and then Don Brash came in and and 
made national credible again and, and Key inherited and enhanced a wonderful organisation. And, you know, Joyce, absolutely world-class. Judy Kirk was just, she had to rebuild the National Party after 2002 and she and Joyce did it and they did a wonderful job. It's interesting that the two politicians that you admire the most aren't from the National Party. You've got a reputation as being the, a National Party um, hatchet man. But but that's not true either, is it? No, that, Nicky Hager left out all the good bits when uh, we had to get rid of some people for Labour, um, but that didn't fit the narrative. No, that's right. I mean, that was one of the most fun jobs that we've ever done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he left <laughs> it all out because he wanted to say it was only national. Um, yeah. And Labour are way better at this kind of stuff than national anyway, so they don't really need much help. But well, um, They used to be. I, I don't think the current lot are particularly good at um, rinsing their own. Well, well, that's Jacinda was way too nice, and she was a lovely person, and she didn't go around cracking heads when they needed cracking, and and you know that that probably uh, caused her a lot of problems. But that was her nature, and she wasn't going to change. Um, but you know, some of the head crackers in the old days, they are good mates with them. They're good people. Yeah, yeah. Now you've um, you've uh, got a few stories about Jacinda Ardern, haven't you? She was. Uh, there's a real crackle of one. I'm sure I'd love to see a that family one. audience camp. <laughs> no, but you, 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 you can uh, you can moderate that. You're you're self aware enough to moderate the uh, the the things that. Are, but I was thinking in particular the dog story. Oh well, well yeah, I suppose that one's relatively safe. But I just could start out by saying. Jacinda is someone I know personally from outside of politics, and she is genuinely lovely, and I really, really like her as a person. I didn't agree with her politics and didn't think she was necessarily all that competent. Yeah. But as a person, I found her just wonderful to be with. And probably the story that best illustrates the nature of Jacinda was the first time I had dinner with her. Um, she was a very, very new MP. And um, at one point of the dinner with a whole group of other people, she said something a bit snarky about my friends in National. I said, Jacinda, all my friends in National are really jealous that I'm having dinner with you because they all think you're lovely, but they haven't given you a chance. Oh, you haven't given them a chance to get to know them. And she took that on board and went out of their way to, to get to know people to the extent that one of the more you know, right-wing national MPs that we both know, mm. the first MP to see his firstborn child was Jacinda, not someone from national. And that was just because she'd built such a good rapport and, and she was such a good person. Um, and, you know, that, that's probably the the reason that I often defend Jacinda when others are sort of going around saying she's a dictator. I'm going, well, I don't know about that, but I I just like her as a person. I was one of those people who called her a dictator. Yeah, I thought you were wrong. I didn't think she was competent enough to be a dictator. <laughs> well, maybe she had little helpers like Christopher Hipkins and, you know, Robbo and those guys helping her out with their oh, yeah, tyranny. Those, those, that wasn't real tyranny. I mean, they did their best, but they weren't, you know, not, you can't expect them to implement tyranny if they can't build a light, light rail or 100,000 houses. I mean, it just doesn't stack up. Well, my, my favourite line is they couldn't build a house in a room full of Lego. Yeah, yeah, well, they pretty much couldn't, and they proved it. Mm. Um, any other politicians that you've admired uh, worldwide? Yeah, look, I, I think that Bill Clinton in particular um, was a, 
a absolutely stunning example of um, how a party that had basically lost, um, that they'd only won one presidential election between 1968 and 1992, and the Democratic Leadership Council was a bunch of sensible moderates who set out to build uh, uh, capable people or an organisation to get moderate Democrats electable instead of having loony left people that got, got hammered in the um, general election. And, and Clinton came out of that. And, and you know, that, they're the kind of people that I like, the people that can come out and, and win. Um, when they've, you know, they'd had one president since 1968, and he only lasted one term and wasn't very good. And Clinton, you know, rebuilt the Democratic Party and was able to win quite well. So I admire him a lot for that. Um, I, I think that the other ones that I really admire are, um, are Reagan and Thatcher, who both stood for stuff. You know, Reagan was absolutely sure that the Soviet Empire was was evil when he did something about it. And, and, you know, you read stories about how Britain went from being a very depressed place with not much opportunity to something, somewhere that really believed in itself when Thatcher got in there and cleaned out the unions and cleaned out the socialism and just made Britain a place where you could do stuff. What do you think then of how the Democratic Party has evolved since the Clinton days? Um where they had a dabble with Hillary Clinton as a candidate, Obama, and now Biden. Well, look, I I thought Obama was an unbelievably skilled politician, and I thought that his um, building of a uh, backroom, you know, that that was at the time was just so much further ahead of both Clinton and McCain. His campaign team, um, he won partly because he was great, but partly because he built a wonderful team. And, you know, um, I, I think Clinton was always going to struggle. Uh, scolds don't win, and Clinton was a scold. And, you know, she lost a, an unlosable election. She had the hubris to think she was going to take uh, states off the uh, Republicans because Trump was useless, and he went and beat her in three vital states. Um, Biden, I've been profoundly disappointed in that he hasn't been a moderate. He's been quite um, fiscally reckless, and then he's bought into all the woke bullshit. And you know, he he was elected as a sensible moderate, and he's governed as a left winger. Uh, I think he'll probably still win again if he's running against Trump because Trump's negatives are higher than Biden's, but it's not certain. It's a, it's a toss-up, really, isn't it? Um, is the, the polarization in politics worldwide has grown and grown, and none more so than in the United States? Yeah, I think Trump's a special case. I, I think he has a, a, a small group of devoted, or not a smaller a group of devoted followers that isn't going to be able to get to the sort of numbers that he needs to win. Now, I could be wrong. You know, it, Joe Biden could die, and the Democrats have to put a ring in. And if it's Kamala Harris, then I don't think anyone would beat her. Yeah, just depends on how demented Biden becomes in the next. Oh, no, next I I think that um, you know I think that if he was on if he was formally on the ballot and he's dead, he's still got a good chance of winning. Uh, that's what I love about Simon Lusk. You get uh, truth bombs, whether you like it or not. Um, Back to New Zealand politics, you've talked about Phil Goff not building a back room, not building an engine room. You've talked about uh, Hillary Clinton doing the same thing. You've talked about others who have built these engine rooms and, and, and 
you know, the back room. Are we seeing that now in in the minor parties? Are we, this is the problem with minor parties that they have a good idea, whatever it is, it could, they think it's a good idea, and then they say, well, we'll form a party, and do they come to you for advice? And what advice do you tell them when they come to you? Yeah, they, they have. And, and the, the first thing that I tell them is that um, it's going to cost them a whole lot of money to get me to tell them that they're probably not going to succeed because otherwise they just keep bugging me. And the reason that no party has got into parliament without having someone been a previous MP in the MMP area era is it's just incredibly hard. You've either got to win a seat, which just simply doesn't happen, except perhaps in the Maori seats. Um, and even then, Tariana Turia had a, she was left Labour. Um, so you very hard to win a seat, um, and near impossible to sort of get the 130 to 150 thousand votes if you're determined to run it your way. Now, if the the guys that have wasted heaps and heaps and heaps of money like Kim.com, Colin Craig and Gareth Morgan had have done the sensible thing, which is concentrate on data, work out who the voters that they needed to turn out were and then turn them out instead of swanning around the country running a campaign as if they were running for president, um, they might have had a chance. But even then, really, really tough to build a database that allows you to turn out 150,000 voters for you to guarantee you get the 5%. I was looking up some statistics when I was talking earlier to Sandra Gowdy about her assessment of the wasted vote. Um, And I pointed out to her that that there's been 85 parties in New Zealand that have never held a seat or been represented in Parliament. And 52 of those are since the advent of MMP. And only 24 parties have had representation, but most of them are only one-term and it was formed by a, you know, a former MP of another party, and so they had name recognition or or incumbency to get. But they eventually they they wane and they disappear. Is are these the kind of statistics that you educate um, the minor party adherents when they come and seek your advice? Yeah, look, I just ask them uh, very very directly: How are you going to get to one hundred and fifty thousand votes, and how are you going to win a seat? And if you're not going to do that, how are you going to get there? And Almost all of them have no idea. They haven't even thought that through. They sort of think, oh, I'm, I'm special, I'll just get elected. And it just doesn't happen like that. And they, they, if they've got money, they waste it like those three very wealthy guys that didn't run the, the proper campaigns that might have given them a chance because they're just doing all the boring stuff like, you know, getting out and talking to people and doing public meetings instead of doing the really hard work of building their database up. Um, and you know Obama's 2012 campaign, he spent 100 billion, 100 million dollars on data. Um, you know you don't need to spend that much in New Zealand, but that's that's what he spent on building the voter turnout organisation. And you know someone like Gareth Morgan, if he had have done that, he might have had a chance, but he you know he probably wouldn't have. Um, Colin Craig got closest, but he was adamantly opposed to building a database. He just liked going around uh, being Colin Craig and and um, doing public meetings. Yeah, I remember you got me involved uh, in a meeting with Colin Craig, and I came out of that meeting. I said, I don't want anything to do with this guy. And uh, you asked me why, and I said, my guts are telling me he's weird. Yeah, and you're right. Um, <laughs> and that, unfortunately, is um, just you know, a, a gut feeling for a lot of people towards a politician 
make a makes a huge difference. And I think that's why Luxon's struggling. You know, there's just the gut feeling. No one is really that keen on, you know, you wouldn't want to go and have a beer with him, even if he did drink beer. He's not the kind of bloke that you want to go and have a beer with. Now, Chippy may not be exactly the kind of bloke that you want to have a beer with, but you'd have a beer with him over Luxon. And, you know, over the summer I was asked what's going to happen in the election. Well, what do you think of Luxon? And this was from predominantly right-wing people. And no one had anything positive to say, even if they didn't have anything negative to say. A very different reaction from the um, summer of 2007, 2008, where people actually liked Key. But, you know, I think that politics and, and the blink test, you know, the time that it takes you to blink um, mm. is the time you make up your mind about uh, people. If if you're not willing to do the work like Helen Clark did to build that formidable organisation over decades, um, you don't get away without being someone special like Jacinda who, who was able to come and pump up Labor's polls just because people liked her. And, you know, I, I'm always looking at what the net favourables are and you and I took out Andrew Little by running the net favourables every month and they just got worse and worse and worse and yep. you know the Simon Bridges net favourables were just appalling when he got rolled and you know I'm, that's that's the thing I'm looking for most in the polls I'm certainly looking at direction but I'm always looking at what are the net favourables of the two big party leaders saying and Luxons have been consistently about minus five, and Hipkins have been slightly positive. And that's probably the only thing that gives Labor a chance because they have been hopeless. They can't deliver anything, but they've got a, a leader that people don't have a just a, a negative or a ambivalent attitude to. Um, they actually quite like him. Mm. I mean, you'd have a shandy with Hipkins, wouldn't you? Well, maybe well, the rumour was is that he used to drink pink cocktails while he's watching the Boxing Day test. Um, I'm with, the, sure. with the little umbrellas? Did he have the little umbrellas I, in them? I don't know, but it's not exactly what you expect for the man, a, a leader of a party that represents the working man. Well, you know, sausage rolls and beer is what he should have been um, having. Yeah, he's yeah, he's, yeah. he's refound his desire to uh, eat the sausage rolls, but uh, it doesn't seem to be out there as the everyday man. But but then again, Christopher Luxon's a teetotaler, and you, you, if you if you wanted to have a beer with him, you couldn't. He, yeah, he'd be there with his lemonade. I don't know that many people want to have a beer with him either. And you know, I've, I've always uh, criticised uh, that that Gore was a much better politician than uh, George W. Bush and W. won because he was a guy that people wanted to have a beer with. Yeah, well, you know, it was um, actually George W. Bush that um, uh, got me involved in blogging. Um, you probably don't know the story, but Dad went and had a meeting with him. And he says, oh, you know, blogging's where it's at. You know, they're, they're making big changes in the media landscape and all of that back then. And um, so that's what got me started um, and, and my desire to beat David Farah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that it was also that um, Bush said that there were two really influential Bush, uh, bloggers in Florida that really made a decisive difference to winning Florida, which was the swing, swing state. Um when he beat Kerry, and mm. you know he was right. It was um, important, um, and it still is important. Well, and that and polling is important too, and knowing knowing what your market is. And all too often, uh, you see, uh, especially minor parties, ha- uh, come out and say things like, "You know, are oh, we going to win Northland, or we're going to win this seat?" Or you've even got the ACT Party saying that they're going to win 
uh, tamaki, but they haven't got any polls or any credible polls, if they do have polls, to support that contention. Yeah, and um, Colin Craig ran a poll saying that he was going to get or that he was he had a fifty four percent support in Rodney, I think. In I remember that. I remember yeah, that. and um, and you, me, and Farah were trying to find out how the questions were asked, and we basically had to shame the polling company into uh, releasing their methodology because I was pretty sure that Colin Craig would struggle to get you know, 10,000 votes, um, more likely 8,000, which is what those the third-party people tend to get if they if they were able to, and that's what happened. Um, you know, Colin Craig's poll was, was not sound, and uh, I'm pretty sure that Mark Mitchell ended up getting over 50% of the vote and winning quite handsomely. And that's the thing, is that in your job, in my job, data is imperative. Without any data, you're just guessing. Yeah. And, and, and you can guess based on experience and lived experience in, in politics and things like that, but data is always more important than anything else. And yeah, that's and one thing you've taught me over the years of talking with you and, and discussing things. Uh, that's the thing that I've always stuck to. And I'm, in fact, I famously won a bet with Leighton Smith based on data when he was calling an election for somebody else, and I was saying, "No, no, he's not going to win," and here's why. And and, and Obama, dates, yeah, yeah, Obama in, in 2012, and Nate yeah. Silver was saying, "Look, this is it's likely to be Obama," and it was. And you know, you can you can wish as much as you want, but it's not ever going to be. Um, uh, or, or it's not just wishing doesn't make it happen. No, and that's what I call hopium. You know, I've got a good idea. I'm going to create a party. We're going to um, stand in the election and then win. You know, and, and I used to write about it all the time, about calling them the South Park gnomes and their yep. sales strategy. You know, steel underpants. Second part of the strategy was something question marks, and the third part was win. And and that's what I look at a lot of. Um, you know, they're, they're good people in these in these minor parties that that have been established. Their their hearts are in the right place. It's just the execution and the planning that's wanting, and and they seem surprised when they, when they get rinsed. Yeah, their heart may be in the right place, but their brain isn't. I mean, this is a relatively academic thing to do. You, you've got to win, say, 150,000 votes. Well, you work back from that point. How are you going to do it? And they don't think about that. And, you know, the ones that think well, they're going to win a seat are just in, in New Zealand history, it has been very, very difficult for anyone to win a seat without an established party. And, you know, it's just almost impossible. So I don't believe any of them are likely to. That's not going to change. It's not going to be like the Teals in Australia. Um, New Zealand just doesn't have that culture. Um, Australia used to have a whole lot more independence and, uh, before they all became the Teal independence. We don't have that here. We, we just simply don't. So it's how do you get to 150,000 votes? That gives you a bit of a buffer. Um, and no one has sat down and said, okay, so this is how we're going to do it. Um, they think, oh, I'm going to set up a political party, and then they start worrying about the 150,000 votes. Mm. I, I once did a, a project where I looked at what I thought it would cost me to get to the 150,000 votes over three years and without an existing um, candidate, and I, I thought it would be about $5 million. And I went and told the people that wanted to put the money in that it was about $5 million, which was more than they were willing to put in. But I also said to them, 
you're not really going to be guaranteed to achieve much of anything in a small party anyway. You're, you're better off just backing people in existing parties and building friendships and rapports there, and you can have way more influence than trying to set up a new party. That's what I've said to to people, uh, you know, specifically the libertarians. I used to talk to them a lot before they disbanded. Um, disheartened, probably. And I always said, look, um, political parties are really short on enthusiastic volunteers. And so if you go and infiltrate a major party with a few of your mates and some key electorates and things like that, then you can set about, uh, uh, particularly in the National Party, it's easier to do than the Labour Party. But in the National Party, you can set about um, establishing yourself as a potential candidate. uh, And then once you get there, you can start, you know, expanding that across different electorates and because they really are desperate for volunteers and assistance to, to work. And so setting up a, a, a small minor party with the, the very real risk that you won't even get elected is, is a poor choice when you could have gone in with a bunch of enthusiastic people. Um, I won't, I mean, you could say hijacked, but, you know, take over particular branches or electorates and, and get like-minded people elected. And it seems a far more efficient way to do things than it is, uh, you know, from forming a small party. And a, and a case in point is the fundies that are getting themselves selected in the National Party. Oh, and they've done a wonderful job. You know, the, the, um, uh, Greg Fleming, who's running in Mangakeke, has spent a lot of time and a lot of energy and effort building the capability to get people like him, Chris Pink, Simeon Brown, selected as... Simon O'Connor? Yeah, national MPs. I don't know how close Simon was, but the other two were um, very much uh, involved with, with Greg Fleming's organisations. And, you know, they're disciplined and, and they were organised and they've got people in Parliament now promoting their views. Well, actually, Greg Fleming's one of the people I told to go and infiltrate a, a major party and, uh, and, yeah. and have a crack. And, and he's taken it's taken him a few years i mean that was many years ago that i spoke to him i think it was back in 2010 sometime about then yeah with your uncle david and yeah, yeah. it was then and and you know those guys but they do have they have got people in parliament now that represent their views what about money in politics do you think you know like you hear constantly the labor party banging on about uh, big money in politics and how they want to have state funded uh, political parties. What's your view on big money in politics? Does it buy policy? Does it buy influence? Well, I, I think if we look at the money that Gareth Morgan, Colin Craig and Kim.com wasted, the pretty clear answer, no, the public are way too smart to get bought off by people like that. Um, I think it does make a difference around the margins, but it doesn't make that much difference. You know, I, I would be surprised if the um, Maori Party doesn't do pretty well this election, and I don't think they're going to be exceptionally well funded. Um, the Greens are um, not all that well funded, and they do pretty well. Um, Labor is still polling in the 30s or near 30s, and they don't seem to have much money. Um, I, I, and the, the money that I do see spent in politics, are I wonder whether it's it's useful. Um, uh, yes, hoardings matter, but you know, just for the life of me, can't understand why National put so much energy and time into human hoardings when they could be actually talking to people. I, mean, I, I just don't know why a voter would suddenly decide to vote for National because some idiot's waving a sign at them on the side of the road. 
um, I, I just that that's money that would be far better off spent building National's internal database, um, working out who the swing voters are and making sure they vote. But that's hard, and waving signs is really easy, so they'd take the easy option. Well, it's like sausage sizzles, isn't it, for fundraising? It's easy to organise, but not particularly fruitful. No, no, and you, you, you've got to go out and talk to people and your friend raise first, and, and Judy Kirk was great at that. She and, and, you know, the guy that was perhaps even better was uh, old mate Mike Williams, who we used to call Fat Tony because he looked yeah. like the guy off The Simpsons. But he was a wonderful shakedown artist and, and funded the, the Labor Party for years. And, and I know some really, really right-wing people that always took his call because he would, you know, he would shake them down, but he also looked after them and he, he he was in contact with them. He helped them if they needed some information or they had a problem. Um, and, yeah, that that is hard work and Mike did it all. And, you know, we might mock him for being fat Tony, but, Jesus, he was good. Yeah, but you always had to count your fingers after you shook his hand. Yeah, but, but you know, so what? He kept winning. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just but isn't um, untold admiration for fat Tony. Great guy. <laughs> Isn't uh, isn't the ACT Party proof that money doesn't win um, politics, ideas wins politics? Well, I don't even know that it's necessarily ideas either. Um, uh, ACT has been around for about 30 years and they've had probably more money than anyone else except maybe National. And David Seymour inherited a party that was near death and has rebuilt it and done a wonderful job. Um, but... They haven't had a minister inside cabinet in 30 years. Um, if, if money was so influential, um, uh, ACT would have been running the country and it just hasn't happened. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't believe that money is the determining factor. I think not having money makes a difference and having money is useful. But you've still got to be a likeable, appealing person. I mean, Jacinda did pretty well in 2017's election and Labor didn't have much money then. It was just they liked Jacinda. Yeah. And you've got to have stickability, and that was Jacinda's problem. She's never stuck at anything for a long period of time. Well, I'd also just say that I I never believed she wanted to be leader, let alone prime minister. Mm. Um, yeah, she she was the the stories are that it was five or six days of little telling her she had to take over because he was not going anywhere because his his net favourables were so bad, and Labor was trending downwards in the low twenties, um, and she had to be persuaded. And, you know, most people we know in politics want to be leader because they think everyone will love them. Um, Jacinda didn't want to be leader, but everyone did love her. Yeah. More, more fool us. Yeah, but, you know, good on her. She managed to do something that probably no one else will ever do, which is win a majority in, the, um, in an MMP election. You're known as a political hitman. Let's look at some recent hit jobs. and. I'd- Appreciate your assessment on on those, whether or not they were external or internal hit jobs. And an internal hit job being your own peat party throwing you under the bus, uh, as opposed to the opposition getting you. So if we go back uh, recent history, we had Claire Curran's uh, demise, and uh, we had Melissa Lee uh, effectively prosecuting her in Parliament uh, with questions. Was that an internal hit job or was it just competence versus incompetence? I think it was Claire made a pretty bad mistake and then the cover-up caught her and Melissa Lee was able to do a wonderful job and deserves credit for getting rid of a minister that 
had made a fairly basic mistake that if she had have apologised immediately and admitted to, um, she probably would have still been there. But, you know, you've, you've, you've got to be able to exploit opportunities like that, and Melissa was able to. What about uh, Michael Wood's downfall? That one's really perplexing. It's, uh, I mean, I don't think National had anything to do with it. The no. guy just made an absolutely terrible error that is, you know, for a guy that has been hanging around politics almost his whole life to make that kind of terrible error when he'd been asked 12 times is, is you know, it's just there's something going wrong. He, he should have been better than that. I think that was an own goal. But do you, do you think, I mean, he's sticking around after this election. He's standing again in Mount Roskill. What are his chances realistically? I mean, he, he rates himself. He's one of those politicians who thinks that every utterance from his mouth is a pearl of wisdom and that we should all listen. And if we're not listening, then he'll just talk at us for another 15 minutes to convince us of that. Does he really have a future after a, such an appalling, you know, tone-deaf defence of what was essentially um, a Big Mac, chips and a Coke. Yeah, look, um, I think he does, and the reason is is that he's in a safe seat and, and while we know what happened, most people would not know who Michael Wood is and he, in six years or nine years' time, he will still be the MP for Mount Roscoe. He's got a safe blue seat. Um, now, whether he'll ever be any good is is another matter, right? He he reminds me quite a lot of Bill English, who who you know, Mister Twenty One Percent. He took National to its lowest level ever in two thousand and two, and then tried to hang around, even though he's obviously useless. Um, and he took over from John Key, and he was a whole lot better after time. But that was really, in in my view, just a wonderful organisation that National had set up uh, in the uh, between. 2002 and 2008, and then John Key was a wonderful politician who was really data-driven and it was hard for Bill to stuff it up. Uh, the fact he stuffed up the coalition negotiations probably wasn't much of a surprise because he really doesn't you know, have much track record of success as a leader. Um, and I could see Michael Wood being like that. Yes, he can come back. I, I don't imagine that he's ever going to be a particularly successful leader because he hasn't he's, – he's followed the Phil Goff – uh, route instead of the Helen Clark route, and he hasn't built a team. I don't know whose fundraisers are. I know that he doesn't have that much money in Mount Roskill. Um, he hasn't got the people working on policy in a paid position. Um, I don't think he did any reach, uh, outreach to all the big donors in New Zealand who are really easy to find and always happy to talk to politicians. So yeah, I think he'll probably survive, but whether he is ever going to be Prime Minister, I'd be very surprised. And, you know, the other thing is, is that guy, you know, you, you, in the time it takes you to blink, you think, Jesus, he's a greasy little prick. Um, um, and, you know, why would I vote for him? Um, he, he's got a weird haircut um, and he's just a strange guy. What about Kerry Allen? Yeah, look, I, I have some sympathy for Kerry who had some obvious issues with alcohol, but she was someone that probably should have done a whole lot more and a whole lot better. Um, and the reason that I say that is she's actually a really warm and engaging and, and positive person. But, the, you know, drink and her lack of discipline cost her and in the way that many elite athletes with plenty of talent don't quite make it because they're not disciplined enough. If she had have followed the Helen Clark 
model and built a team and built capability and and not turned up hungover and yelled at staff because she was in a bad mood because of a hangover. She had huge potential, but she couldn't do those other things that were necessary to succeed. Do you think that there's some merit to the lines that were being run by some in the media that attacks on her were racist and misogynist? No. No, she was horrible to her staff and they arced up. Uh, They thought, no, this has gone too far, we're going to nail you, and they did. So it's an internal job. Yeah, I think that the public service were really, really upset about everything, and um, they got stuck in. And it it takes a lot for that to happen. I I don't think it was inside Labor. I think it was inside the public service because they were sick of having her abuse their staff. When these sorts of stories hit, there's always a whole lot of people that go out on Twitter and go, oh, this looks like the work of Simon Lusk and Cameron Slater. And they attribute um, these attacks and, and, you know, label things dirty politics because of Nikki Hager's book. But the reality is far different. Sometimes we wish we could claim, you know. Absolutely. I, I mean, I have a policy of never complaining if I'm blamed for something and never correcting anyone if they give me credit for something because it all just sort of balances out. But we get way too much credit for for stuff that happens. And that's the thing with dirty politics, wasn't it, is that Nikki Hager wrote that book with a worldview and a lens that is of some devious, dirty, despicable politicians. But he wrote it about us and I just laughed and laughed and laughed at the heroic assumptions that he made in that book. Did, did you laugh the same when you read it? Oh, I didn't read it. I'd, I'd written a fair bit of it. I didn't need to. I just thought it was funny and it was great for business. I mean, periodically we joke about sending Nikki all our emails again so we can get some more work. <laughs> well, that's the thing. But, you know, he had this idea that was a diabolical master plan um, of of nastiness that was out there involved in politics and the reality was it was just a couple of blokes that were having an awful lot of fun oh yeah yeah and you know doing some stuff to correct the failings of our system where we do have some pretty despicable people in politics and they do need to be removed and you know you can't make stuff up about people there's got to be a mm. kernel of truth in it to be effective but you know there's there's not many people in parliament that have a whole lot of people willing to defend them as being really good people because most of them aren't. Um, which then brings me to a, a final kind of question. We've talked about who you are impressed with, who you respect. Who are some absolute, you know, deadbeat MPs and you think what on earth have they ever achieved and why are they there? Oh, there's way too many to comment there. Um, there's got to be some top ones, though. No, well, no, no. In fact, the, the, the criticism that I'd always level is the failed leaders. Um, they're the ones that are the most disappointing. They knew what they wanted to do and they, they'd seen Helen Clark do it and they didn't copy her. They're the ones that I just have the utmost contempt for. They're just amateurs trying to play in a professional game. And, you know, Clark showed how to do it, she did it wonderfully. Joyce, Kirk, Brash, Key, you know, they are very, very effective as a team too. Um, and the the people that I really don't like are the ones that just think that they're going to be like Jacinda. They'll become leader and everyone will love them and they'll succeed. And it doesn't work like that. You you actually have to do a whole lot of hard work over a lot of years. So we had, look at the Labour Party, we had Phil Goff and then we had David Shearer yep. 
and then David Cunliffe, and then Andrew Little, and then Jacinda. You were saying that those four blokes that went before Jacinda, Jacinda's really an accidental leader rather than a planned leader, but the the other four absolutely believed that they'd get to be the leader of the Labour Party and then eventually they'd become Prime Minister and then people would love them. Yeah, and Andrew Little was quoted as saying, well, I don't think you can plan what you're going to do as leader until you become leader. That's just moronic. Of course you can plan. You can plan for all sorts. You can plan for many different scenarios. It's it's not something that is unknown. I mean, you know you're going to have elections. You know you're going to have to recruit candidates. You know you're going to have to fundraise. Um, you know that you need good policy people. All these things are known, and and they don't do the work. They think that what's really important is hanging out in Parliament and talking to each other instead of doing the hard work to develop the policy and drafting the legislation and stuff so they can affect change. And then if you look at the National Party, we had um, we had Simon Bridges, we had Bill English, we had Simon Bridges, uh, we had Todd Muller, we had Judith Collins, uh, and now we've got Luxon. Is this the same sort of thing that that we had with the Labour Party? Or is it yeah, slightly I, different? I, I think it's slightly. I, I certainly think that um, the three uh, opposition leaders that have uh, that weren't well, so Bridges, Muller, and Collins didn't do the work necessary over the decades preceding to succeed. Mm. Um, and you know, I think that the the, the history proves that out. Um, I, I think that Luxon's lack of preparation and lack of professionalism is being shown by us having the worst government in living memory and probably in New Zealand history that can't deliver a thing, and he hasn't been able to prosecute the case against the Labor Party. I mean, it's just ludicrous that he can't prosecute the case that this government really aren't fit, you know, probably to be running a fried bread truck, let alone a country, and they haven't prosecuted the case. Now, I think some of them have. I think Mark Mitchell has done a really good job on crime, but that's really easy to do. But, you know, I... I don't hear them going on and on and on about truancy, which seems to me to be a pretty important thing, and that I think that most people would agree is important. And that, you know, the, the, the Ministry of Education should be up in the house every week saying what she's doing about truancy, and she just isn't. And a fairly basic stuff like that, they're not. There doesn't appear to be a plan to do. Which is why it looks like it's still a close run thing and harder to pick than a broken nose for this election. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, look, it is. Uh, I, I think that there's a higher likelihood now of a national-led government, but the combination of that government and the form that it takes is in some doubt. And if Winston doesn't get 5%, that split vote may end up with a Labour-Green-Maori government because Winston's vote's wasted. And, you know, that, that that would be very, very frustrating because he's so close. But if people choose to vote for other minor parties that have absolutely got no chance, they're basically gifting government to Labor, Greens, Maori, and people that I'm pretty sure your listeners um, don't particularly like because they won't talk to you. Um, and, you know, I think that that's something that they all need to be thinking about. Who actually listened to us? Who was willing to talk to us? You know, who turned up at the protest? Because most of them just refused to. Um, and then who's got a chance to get into Parliament? And for my money, that means Winston. He was the only one that went to the protest and talked to everyone. He still talks to them. Um, and he's got a chance. I don't see the other minor parties having a chance. So you don't think Matt, King, Matt King's got a chance? No, I think Matt King hasn't got a hope in hell. 
Mm. You know, that, that poll was pretty definitive. I mean, he's not going to win Northland, and, and there's nowhere in the polls where he's anywhere near 5%. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Well, I mean, he told me that their strategy was to win Northland, and, and that was how they were going to get into Parliament. And I said, well, what about the 5%? He said, no, that's too hard. We can't, we can't do yeah, that. Yeah, but it is. And, and it is almost impossible for a new party to win a, um, a seat. Um, and, you know, you know, there's examples of people doing it, but there's, it's not frequent. Or examples of them not. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Tariana Turia did it. Mm. There's, there's been other people that have won seats. Um, and, you know, Chloe Swarbrick won Auckland Central, and she deserves admiration for that. She she. Won a seat she did the she did the work. She did the work. Yeah, yeah, and she's a good politician that people like. I don't really agree with her on much, but doesn't mean that you can't admire her for for winning and being effective. I mean, the national candidate, I think, was thinking she was just going to inherit Nikki Kay's seat and and uh, and get there um, just because she turned up with a blue rosette. And she's mm, one of those I, candidates. I think is a one and done. Yeah, I don't know. I think she might be back. I know her a bit better than you, I think, and I know some of her ex-boyfriends, which she's probably embarrassed about. But um, I think she's better than that. She was. She if if it hadn't have been such a terrible election for New Zealand uh, for national, she might have won. She was pretty close and very hardworking, very competent woman. Well, speaking of competence, she can't be that competent now. And I know that you know her better than me, but she did have Hamish Price as her campaign chairman. Oh, yeah, and she had, uh, I think, Jordan Williams and Luigi Widgewi as her boyfriend yeah. different times. You know, you kind of wonder about her judgment, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you do have to wonder about that. Yeah. The overriding thing that I'm getting from you is that you respect competence and you disrespect incompetence. Yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely clear with candidates. I don't really expect my political views to be represented by them. I'm there to help them win. And and it's it's you know, I don't agree with many politicians on much of anything really, but I still work with them all and I work across the spectrum and I've I've run Wananga with um, Maori who are all very pro co governance and I'm not pro governance and I keep telling them that they don't need a hand up. They're you know, that's not the Special Olympics. They're actually better than their competitors. Mm. Um, and they're cheating because they're you know, they've inherited some wonderful advantages by being Maori. Um, and, you know, they disagree with me on heaps of stuff, but we still work together and we get along well. Uh, and, you know, I think that's the the more people I get to know from the old Labour Party, the more their view is, is that, you know, you, it, it's like a game of rugby. You, you have a, a tough game and you have a beer afterwards, but you don't hate each other and you keep working. And, you know, I think that the backroom guys that we both know, like Chris Trotter and Shane DePoe and John Pagani, those guys are always great to catch up with. Matt just, McCartan. Yeah, and, you know, John Tamahiri. They're just people that are realists. And, you know, they, they, they know that sometimes they're going to win, sometimes they're going to lose, but they don't take it personally. Well, that's the thing. That is that, that's why we talk to them. That's why we engage with them, because they don't take it personally. And, and by engaging with them, we, we can share ideas that they might want to pick up and adopt as well. And, and the world, it becomes a better place because we've maintained that discourse. And, you know, Matt McCartan did a great job getting Kathy, Kathy Casey on the Auckland Council. Just one, ran a wonderful campaign. He just deserves admiration for that. Yeah. Well, I better let you get back to your hunting commitments. Yep. Uh, they're far more important to, to you than politics. Yep. And uh, I appreciate the time that you've taken to share a little bit about the inside back rooms of politics and uh, and the fact that you are paid to win, not lose.
Yeah, thanks, Ken. No worries. All good. I'm pretty sure that Simon Lusk and Matt McCartan would enjoy a good yarn and beer together. Now you can see why. For someone in my line of work, how important it is to keep political lines of communication across the political spectrum. I hope you enjoyed hearing his pearls of wisdom as much as I enjoyed talking about them with him. Fill that mailbag with comments. Send them to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR.